Today's episode of Theoretically Speaking features Dr. Eric Stanek from Anthem, Dr. Michael Grabner from HealthCore, Deb DeShenza from Preemie World, Jennifer Degel from Speaking for Moms and Babies, and Dr. Thomas Miller from Bayer. They provide insights into improving neonatal outcomes using real-world evidence. Let's jump in. This one is for Eric and Mike. What data sources and capabilities are crucial for payers to have to generate high quality RWE in maternity and other conditions? I'll take that first and, and I'll let Mike uh, chime in. So it's a great question. There really are, are sort of several key components to this, right? I think first and foremost is a recognition that real world evidence is needed, a commitment to generating it, and a commitment to investing in what is needed to be able to pull that off. One, you need you need data, right? You need, and we saw from our, uh, pre, our the limitations polling question that, you know, folks noted was, you know, not having the data that they need. So as a payer, harnessing all of the information that you have on your members is of vital importance. It highlights the, the value of what are you might term as integrated benefits, meaning you have all of their medical claims, you have their pharmacy claim, you have other benefit type services and claims, whether it's dental or behavioral, what have you. And that's super important uh, to pull in. You know, having the ability to identify and link uh, these individuals to electronic health records, as well as to other data sets that could be valuable. For example, data sets such as the, the National Death Index, as an example, can be very valuable. You have to have the ability to maintain the data, right? You, you have to manage it. You have to be able to organize it in a way that is that facilitates research. And lastly, you need the people and the expertise from different disciplines, whether it's HELR, statistics, analytics, programming, health services research, uh, to be able to do that. And you know, Mike, I'd like to invite you to chime in uh, uh, as well. Great. Thank you, Eric. One item I wanted to pick up on was also mentioned in one of our polling questions. The second question asked about challenges as it relates to generating or using real-world evidence. And I think about a third or more of respondents mentioned that there are doubts about methodological rigor, for example, compared to RCTs that affect their use of real-world evidence. But I think these are often deeply held beliefs regarding biases when you use observational data and observational study designs, primarily around the lack of randomization and concerns about unmeasured confounding. There has been a lot of progress in the in understanding what can drive differences between an RCT and an observational study over the last decade. And randomization turns out to be not one of the key ones. A lot of it really has more to do with appropriately designing the study to start follow-up at the correct time to account for censoring and things like that. There are, in fact, several collaborations right now, such as the RCT Duplicate one, that explicitly have FDA sponsorship and try and see how easy or how difficult it is to replicate RCTs with observational data. HealthCore itself is also engaged in this field. We are very interested in promoting good causal research using observational data. In fact, we'll have an upcoming workshop at a conference in a couple of weeks, but we invite any discussions and from folks who are interested in how to better use real-world evidence for their purposes, including regulatory submissions. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was really informative. The next question here is for Jen and Deb. 
I'm going to add um, a second part to the question. So what steps can we take to get the patient voice even better integrated into research projects and policy making in this space? And I want to add as well this other question. And how would one join the INC? I'll go with the second part. To join the INC, you can reach out to any of us and me or Deb or Tom, and we'll put you in contact with the appropriate person, or you can visit the website that was linked before. To include parents, really, that's kind of what we do. So you could reach out to Deb or I, or you can visit the NICU Parent Network, and that is your largest umbrella of U.S. NICU parent professionals who do this work and advocate. We've spoken on Capitol Hill. We've been in all kinds of legislative sessions, and we provide our opinions. And oftentimes, we private contract with healthcare companies to provide our opinions and review documents. So you reach out to one of us or NICU Parent Network, and the, the component of that in Europe would be EFCNI. We can get you that information as well. And Deb, you want to add some of your other work? Sure. So I'm a co-founder of the Alliance for Black NICU Families. It's been very enlightening in this space to hear about access to these families and the lack of trust in the community in terms of, I mean, all you have to do is read the news about COVID, and that's a perfect example. But our goal is to educate and advocate and help the community understand these interventions and, and participate. We believe we're going to have great success with that. But also, NPN is a phenomenal organization, as is EFCNI. So there are, and, and there's a group also in Australia, too. There are a few groups. And so I think there is patient outreach. I think you just got to connect and talk to them. It, it doesn't need to be a complicated conversation. It should be a connecting point. We want to do better. How do we involve you? That's all you got to do. And Inc. is a free membership, by the way. There's no cost to join, and we meet all over the world. So there you go. That's great. Thank you. Thank you both. Let's do one more question here for Tom. What challenges are you experiencing in creating and using real-world evidence for your purposes? Great question, and I think in some respects overlapping to some of the pay-related topics that were made earlier. What I've really come to appreciate is that it you, you need to be careful to avoid garbage in, garbage out, right? The, the, how the data is curated, the quality control and consistency of the data sets is, need, needs to be at, at, a, at a threshold that's consistent with expectations in our world with, with regulators. I would argue that the expectation and the standards for data submissions are of paramount importance for, for this particular circumstance where a regulatory authority is making a, deci- a definitive decision about whether the evidence supports conclusions of safety and efficacy. So I made the point and I kind of took through a cascade a little bit. While EMR data is plentiful, it's not always consistently managed from, from a quality control perspective. Whereas some of the observational based studies and or natural history studies that have been referenced in, in my talk and and in the beginning session, there the, the advantage of, of a natural history study that you prospectively create is that you can curate the data set perfectly and assure a priori that quality controls are in place. So I think really being mindful of, yes, there's, there is quite a number of sources of data, 
but you have to make sure that that data is going to be fit for your intended purpose. And if your purpose is in support of generating tier one level evidence to ultimately pursue prescribing information and labeling, I think you should need to be prepared for a fairly rigorous conversation with your counterparts at your health authority to assure that they understand that the data is usable for the intended purpose. hope you enjoyed this episode of Theoretically Speaking and that you'll tune in to future episodes where we chat with pharma value, evidence, and access experts. Don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.